Well, if you would, take your copy of the Scriptures this morning and open to Amos chapter 3. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. If you get somewhere in the ballpark, you're close. Several of you commented that I was just moving too quickly through the book of Ephesians, and (laughs) the best way to slow down is just go to a different book, so... We'll be covering verses 1 through 15 of Amos chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 8. Verse 1 begins, Hear this word which Yahweh, we'll be using the LSB this morning, has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up out of the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion give forth its voice from its den unless it has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity happens in a city, has not Yahweh done it? Surely, Lord Yahweh does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his slaves, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? Lord Yahweh has spoken. Who can but prophesy? This is a message of judgment. A message of judgment given to Israel, to God's people. The book began in Amos chapter 1 and 2, pronouncing judgment on the nations. And the nations were rightly deserving of that judgment. And Israel joined in clapping at the judgment that was coming. And then, as the roar of the lion got closer, they realized that judgment was coming for them. Amos is the messenger. The book begins, Amos 1.1, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa. Now, a few things about Amos, this man, that we don't know much. Some we can tell from his names. Commentators have suggested a few meanings. Perhaps his name derived from the Hebrew verb meaning to load or to carry a load or burden. And the idea was that this simple sheep herder and shepherd was given a burden, a message of judgment to carry. Other scholars have suggested that perhaps the name was given to Amos, kind of a nickname by the hearers of his message. They saw him as a burden. In other words, when they saw him coming, they would say something like, well, here comes that pain, troubler of Israel. Another possible meaning for Amos' name is one sustained by Yahweh, by the Lord. And certainly Amos was sustained as he faced opposition to his 
ministry. At the end of the day, it's impossible to know which one of these to pick. If I had to pick, I would go with the last one. And yet, all three suggestions do give us a sense of what the man was called to do. He had a hard message for a people who had hard hearts. He was from Tekoa. Tekoa, not Texas. There probably is a Tekoa, Texas, right? (laughs) But Tekoa in Judah, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. So even though he was out of the city, he was familiar with the city. He apparently had two occupations. One we pick up from verse 1. He was a sheep herder, or probably more precisely, a sheep breeder. It was an occupation that existed at that time where he probably had thousands of sheep overseeing multiple shepherds, a kind of marketing of sheep business. But also we learn not only was he a shepherd, but in addition to this, you can look at Amos 7.14. He says he is a grower of sycamore figs. Amos 7.14, then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. He was a shepherd. He was a prophet and a cultivator. Being a shepherd and a prophet puts him in a very privileged category. Abraham was a shepherd and prophet. Moses, a shepherd and prophet. King David, a shepherd and a prophet. Christ was the great shepherd and is the great prophet. Amos, little Amos, not well known, was a shepherd and a prophet. God had called him. He wasn't trained for this, which is why when he spoke, he made it clear, I'm not a prophet. I haven't been trained. I'm just a shepherd. Not even the son of a prophet. I am just a normal kind of guy. Very ordinary. Which is to say, Amos is an illustration of a biblical principle that gifts and strengths are really not important when it comes to being used. It is not the strength of the man, it is the strength of the man's God. It is the humility to submit to what God would call him to do. And apparently, Amos had that. Now, he didn't have training, but he could speak what God told him to speak. And he could speak loudly if God had called him to do that. And he was willing to do that. God knew he was willing to do that, so he called him out to be used for his glory. The lowly shepherd had a strong message. The Lord loves to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. Often we may think, well, if this person gets saved or that person gets saved, I can't imagine what he could do for the kingdom. But actually, that doesn't matter. If anyone gets saved, I can't imagine what God could do through that person for the kingdom. Amos was called out. To proclaim a message to a nation that had forgotten God. They had forgotten who they were. They had forgotten where they were going. They had forgotten what God had called them to do. And so he has a message, a strong message of warning. 
And we're going to consider his message in four questions concerning this coming judgment. The first question we ask is this, who God judges? Who is it that God judges? In Amos 3 verse 1. Hear this word which Yahweh has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought out from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known amongst all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all of your iniquities. The question is answered right here in verses 1 and 2. Who is it that God is going to judge? He is going to judge his people. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Four facts that the Lord wants Israel to know. I established you as a people. You weren't a people, now you are a people. That is because that is what I have done. The reason you are a people is because I have delivered you. You were once sold as slaves to a foreign nation. I have delivered you. As a result, you are now my family. Out of all the families of the earth, I have known you, brought you into my family. You only have I known. In other words, God was saying to Israel, you need to realize you are in an extremely privileged position. And I have a legitimate claim on you. You are mine. All of this comes together to make Israel's departure from the Lord even more treacherous and evil. To leave an acquaintance, that is one thing, but to leave a family member, that is another. To betray someone who has loaned you a few dollars, that is one thing. But to betray someone who has delivered you from slavery or eternal hell, that is quite another. To depart from a man who knows you as one amongst a thousand, that is one thing. But to depart from your wife, husband, the one you have chosen to especially dwell with, That's treachery, evil. The privileges come together to bring judgment. To depart from the Lord is an evil thing for many reasons. But one of the greatest reasons is because to depart from the Lord is to depart from what He has offered. It is to walk on His grace. This means it is, in a sense, to despise it, to spurn it, to hate it. Not only that, but to shirk the responsibilities that come with that grace. Uh, In the passage later, you will see that Israel had built towers of ivory, great houses. They had used the blessing to bless themselves. And God judges them for that. There are great responsibilities. If you are here today and you know the Lord, that is a great privilege. You have been called out on a planet filled with many thousands, billions of unbelievers who do not have the word, who do not have the privilege. But you need to understand that with this great privilege comes a very grave and great responsibility. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Israel had forgotten that. And so the Lord roars out. He says, you have forgotten that you are my family. I have known you. And the word known here is used to describe the intimacy of a husband and a wife. Yes, 
God knows all nations, but His relationship with Israel is unique. His relationship with those of His family is unique. In Exodus 19.5, God proclaims that Israel is His treasured possession amongst all the peoples. They enjoy the privilege of being His people. And yet they had forgotten what this meant. A covenant relationship with the covenant-keeping God assumes certain responsibilities. It assumes love, faithful love, that they will continue to love the one who has first loved them, that they would forsake all other loves for the one that they love. Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. It assumes obedience and submission. Israel was called to obey and submit to God and to walk with Him. It assumes companionship, that they were to stay in a close relationship with Him. And it assumes faithfulness, that they would continue to obey. That they would pass these things on to their children. And yet as the Lord looked down, what he saw was not that they were passing on the truth, proclaiming the truth, but that they were passing on something else. Sin was growing. It had to be stopped. They had to be warned. And this is exactly what he does. All this comes together so that we might ask this question, when the Lord blesses, what is the purpose? When the Lord saves, what is the purpose? Why has He blessed His people? Why has He blessed Israel? Why does He bless certain nations? Why does He bless certain churches? And I can guarantee you the answer is not so that they would continue to serve themselves. The answer is not so that they would continue in sin. What shall we say then, Paul says, Romans 6.1, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? He goes on later to say, Christ was raised so that we too might walk in newness of life. God is not blessed so that sin might continue. And in a similar way, God did not deliver Israel so that they might continue in their sin. And so verse 2 reads, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore, here's the logic, because you are in my family, because I have blessed you, therefore... I will justly punish you for all of your iniquities. This is the who. God judges those in his family who depart from him. They have forgotten who they truly were, and so they begun to live again like who they were before. God reminds them of the privileges so they might know judgment is justified. Essentially what he is saying is, you are in my family, this is my responsibility. Your kids get out of line, that's your responsibility. My kids get out of line, that's my responsibility. And the Lord is saying, I have delivered you, called you into my family. You're out of line. It is my responsibility to bring correction. So with the privilege of knowing God comes the very real real possibility of judgment and discipline. And so having considered who it is that God judges, we go on to ask a second question, and that is, when does God bring judgment? When God judges. If you look down at verses 3 through 8, you will see seven rhetorical questions. Maybe they don't seem connected. Maybe they seem unclear, but essentially these are seven analogies 
all drawn from common human experience, something we can all relate to, to bring a point. And what he's doing is he's drawing an argument, drawing them into his argument, and he's cornering them with his logic. Essentially, the logic is going to be this. For every cause, there is an effect. As you've sinned, that is the cause. The effect will be judgment. He's doing similar to what, something similar to what Paul does in Philippians 2. Philippians 2.1, Paul writes, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, essentially he's saying, if these things exist, and if you're a Christian, you're going to be saying, amen, yes, they exist, Paul. Then, fulfill my joy. That you might think the same way, maintaining the same love, being united in the Spirit, thinking on one purpose. You're divided, Philippians, but if these things exist in your life, if you're a Christian, then you have a calling to walk in a certain way. And Amos is going to do something similar. Cause and effect. Do two walk together, verse 3, that's the effect. Without having met, that's the cause. They meet, they walk together. Throughout these, you're also going to notice there are sights and sounds, roars and trumpets, people walking together, birds caught in traps, very picturesque language to get across a very important point. Judgment is coming. For every cause, there is an effect. As we walk through these, we come to the first one. Do two men walk together unless they've made an appointment or unless the ESV says they have agreed to meet? The answer is no. And of course, you know this to be true on a personal level. Those you walk with, you have at one time met with. You have agreed to walk with. There is an agreement. And if you stop walking, there is no longer agreement. word here for make an appointment is actually just a verb to meet. It really doesn't designate whether there was a plan to meet or whether they just met. The point is that at some point they met. And what God is saying is, listen, at some point I brought you out, we met. There was a covenant that was made, an agreement that was made. We all agreed to walk together. I'm still walking in the same direction. Where are you? Obviously, there's been a falling out. Something's changed. Second question. Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Here the picture changes, no longer two friends walking, but there is a lion roaming the forest, and all of a sudden, as you walk in the forest, you hear a roar. And the question is put forth, does a lion roar when there is no prey? And of course, the answer is no. So the assumption here is that I am the prey, Israel is the prey. Why does a lion roar? To warn his prey. What is he warning? You have crossed the boundaries. You're in the danger zone. You're transgressing. You're in de- grave danger. Move back. Get to safe territory or else you will become prey. In other words, if you hear God's roar of judgment, it means that you are the prey. Amos was saying, the Lord is roaring. This is how he begins the book, actually. He says in Verse 2, Yahweh roars from Zion. What is that? Zion is his territory. You are transgressing in his territory, which means you are his prey. 
So this roar is like the roar of the warnings of God's coming judgment. Uh, Warnings of revelation. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. 2 Peter 2 says this, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit and deliver them into chains. And if he did not spare the ancient world, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, then the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Well, they hear the roar, but they keep walking, transgressing. They don't see the lion. I guess we're okay. Let's just keep walking. And what Peter is saying is he's just keeping you under his paw for destruction. He knows how to keep you there. He's warning. And he says especially, Peter says, those who go after the flesh in its corrupt lust and despise authority. These, he said, are like unreasoning animals. Even the animals, when they hear the lion roaring, know it's time to flee. These are just unreasoning animals. Creatures kept for destruction. This is the roar of warning. It is a merciful roar. He was roaring in Amos' day. He still roars today. The boundaries are being transgressed all over the place. There is another roar, though. Not only a first, but a second. Look at the third rhetorical question, Amos 3, 4, second half. Does a young lion give forth its voice, its roar, from its den, unless it has captured something? This is a new verb to describe a new roar. The first roar is the warning. The second roar is the roar of triumph. The prey has been caught and killed, and the lion roars. The game is over. This is the roar that takes place after the kill. It doesn't appear as a warning. It appears as a reality. This one day will happen. Matthew 24, 27. Speaking of Jesus' second coming, we read this. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then we have this cause and effect statement. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The coming of the Son of Man will be as immediate as the lightning. Lightning strikes, the vultures swarm. In other words, at that point, there is no fleeing from his wrath. The vultures swarm because judgment has come. And those who lay down dead under his judgment are those who have refused to repent and heed the warning. These warnings go out to those who have the word of God and those who do not. Vengeance is mine says the Lord. Hebrews 10.26, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. This is speaking of someone who knows the truth and leaves the truth. He has apostatized from the truth. Anyone who dies 
aside of the law of Moses, dies without mercy. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. Here we have an example of that in the book of Amos. A lion who roars with warning will one day roar over his prey. The rhetorical questions continue. He tells us how the prey has come. Amos 3.5, does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? The idea behind the first question is that calamity does not happen by coincidence. If the trap goes off, know that God has done it. He has put the bait there. Calvin writes, it is he, God, who has spread the net of judgment. And the idea behind the second is that God does not set his traps in vain. If the trap has been set, rest assured, it will go off. In other words, God does not make idle threats. This warning is a true warning. And whose fault will it be when the trap goes off? Can they blame God? The one who says, I'm coming. Be warned. The trap is set. Don't keep walking. It will be their fault. They did not heed the warning. They kept walking until the trap went off. He merciful, mercifully has told them where it is. Warned them of why. And they kept walking. Perhaps they thought there is more time. Perhaps they presumed upon God's mercy for the sake of their lust. Whatever the case, the moment that that trap goes off, there will be no more time. God will be just. And so the traps have been set. The lion is roaring. Now there is a trumpet that is blown. Verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? The answer to this is yes, of course they will. Our nation at this point has not seen war as of late, not on our soil, but were a city ever to be sieged here, we would tremble. It is natural, right. And yet there is a greater destruction that is coming. The city is being surrounded and there is no trembling. The trumpet blown is Amos. It is his voice crying out, judgment is coming. You are sinning. It will be just. Repent and turn. And yet, amazement, there's no trembling. Laughing, mocking, scoffing. Falling more into sin, yes, but no trembling. They ignore the judgment. In fact, if biblical history is any indication, or history, they will take that trumpet, they will throw it on the ground, and they will kill the one blowing in it. Now is not the time, one commentator writes, for gentle correction, for the wrath of God has been stirred. 
This is the city before the siege, but there is also a picture of the city after the siege. It is now laid in waste, and the question is, who has done it? If calamity happens in a city, has not Yahweh done it? God has done this. He is the roaring lion. He is the hunter who has set the trap. He is the one who has laid the city in waste. And he is just. And he is good. A city laid in waste in this world may find itself built up again. Many cities are built on the ashes of other cities. But when God's judgment comes, and all of man's great cities are laid to waste, they will not be rebuilt again. The smoke will go up as a testimony to God's power forever. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, this is the God of the Old Testament. He's different from the Jesus of the new, gentle and mild, meek and lowly. I'll take my stand with Andy Stanley. We'll toss this part out. And yet, what he forgot is that if you turn over to Revelation, it is quite clear that Jesus Christ is the roaring lion. Revelation 14.14, a terrifying passage. John has a vision. Then I looked, and behold, pay attention. Can you believe it? A white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, Jesus Christ, having a golden crown on his head. All power and authority is his. In his hand, a sharp sickle. Verse 16, the one who sits on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Judgment came. Another angel came out of the sanctuary, which is in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. Then an angel, the one who has authority over fire, came out of the altar, and he called out with a loud voice to him who has the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe, ripe for judgment. The cup is overflowing with sin. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth, gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden down outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Lest you think you can run that far. This is five feet tall. 200 miles long. The God of judgment is Jesus Christ himself. And when he comes, it will be just. For the warnings have been many and have been ignored. That day has not yet come, but the trap is set. And it will one day spring. The lion has roared in warning, but he's not yet over his prey. The trumpet has sounded, but the siege has not begun. Which means the right response is to tremble. To tremble. 
not only fear, but heed the warning. Oh, unbelievers will tremble on that day, but we need a different kind of trembling. One that causes us to run after the salvation He has provided. The question is, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And the answer is, we shall not. God is just, and thus judgment has been pronounced, but also He is full of mercy, and so He sends warnings. And this is what Isaiah or Amos says, Amos 3.7, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secrets to His servants, the prophets. I've told you beforehand, it's coming. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Amos is saying, listen, I have to say this. God has told me I must pronounce it. He was like Paul Revere, riding with all of his might to warn the cities ahead of the invading armies. It is coming. He cannot help but prophesy and warn. And so the Lord's people, when they stray, must be warned. Nations, when they stray, must be warned. For they are deserving of God's judgment. One timeless truth that can be drawn from this, I am not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I don't know if judgment is coming tomorrow or how it will come. But I can tell you this, a timeless truth, it will come. Transgression is the cause, and when the cause of transgression multiplies, it equals judgment. That is the effect. The foolish man waits for the effect and then looks backwards. The wise man starts with it. He sees the cause and he looks forward that he might see what is coming and course correct and warn. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. If you see a nation or a people or a church that is full and swollen with pride to the extent that they will run headlong into transgression, know this, destruction is coming. Proverbs 17, 19, he who makes his doorway high seeks destruction. Maybe some of you heard this when Joe Biden traveled to Tel Aviv three, four weeks ago to address that nation, their leaders, offering verbal support. Certainly, we, in some ways, thought that was noble. But the words that he chose to do that were very terrifying. This is how he opened. Good afternoon. Please have a seat. I come to Israel with a single message. You are not alone. You are not alone. And as long as the United States stands, and we will stand forever, we will not let you be alone. If I was Israel at that point, usher this man out of here. Extreme pride. Not only the statement itself, but to say the statement while making laws to increase transgression means destruction is coming. 
Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. Hosea 8-7. God never brings judgment without a cause because he's just. And God brings judgment because he is just. He has promised it will come. And he is just because there's always a reason. And so we have another question. Why God judges? In this particular instance, he's going to tell us in verses 9 and 10 of Amos, chapter 3. He says, Make it heard on the citadels of Ashdod and on your citadels in the land of Egypt, and say, Gather yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great confusions within her and the oppressions in her midst, but they do not know how to do what is right, declares Yahweh, those who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the nations. He says to the nations who did not know him, who had heard of this great nation who knew the Lord, I want you to come and see something and be my witnesses. You who know how to do evil, you'll recognize evil. Come up on the mountain, look down. What do you see? Great confusion. When there is confusion in a nation, you know that nation has trampled on the truth. Great confusions, oppressions in her midst, not serving others, oppressing others. He says, you who have the word of God, you do not know how to do what is right. Literally, you are incapable of doing right or of doing what is straightforward and honest. You are living now upon a lie. Romans 1 language. How did they get here? They had the word of God. At one time, they were living according to the word of God. They suppressed it. For the sake of their desires, suppress it, suppress it, suppress it. Therefore, God gave them over to their lust. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. He exchanged them as vessels of mercy for vessels of judgment. Gave them over to an unfit mind. This is why they're doing things which are not proper. The nations see this, and you know what they cry out? Judgment. It's just. They've been crying out against us. They see us as evil. How evil is it to trample underfoot God's mercy? Bring judgment. No excuse. God's judgment could take many forms, sickness, famine, storms, flooding, fires. He chooses in this case to use those very nations. How God judges, our fourth question, starting in verse 11. Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh, an adversary, even one surrounding the land right across your border, will pull down your strength from you. and Your citadels will be plundered. How will God bring judgment? He will use the nations. Every nation is like a pawn in the hand of the great sovereign king. And if he sees fit, he will arrange the board in such a way that there will be no escaping his judgment. And you will remember when judgment comes that he has called out check many times. 
You have thought that you were evading him, but he was only warning you. Checkmate is here. The board has been arranged. He was thousands of moves ahead of you. Playing with you as a father does his son. And it's here. How devastating is it? Verse 12, thus says Yahweh, just as the shepherd delivers from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel inhabiting Samaria be delivered with the corner of a bed or the cover of a couch. In other words, what the shepherd rescues, a leg or a piece of an ear, was nothing more than evidence of total and complete destruction. Sure, there have been some that have been delivered, but they have only been delivered to testify of the great and awful judgment. It has come. Here, he says, testify against the house of Jacob, verse 13. On that day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel, The horns of the altar will be cut into pieces. They will fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Yahweh. All this greed, all this blessing for self-gain will be no more. When the land begins to swell with sin, the land vomits it out. He arranges the nations to bring judgment. Is he doing that with our nation? Or any other nation? I don't know. Maybe the trap is set. Maybe it will spring tomorrow. Maybe far in the future. I don't know this, but I do know that judgment will come. And when it comes, it will be swift and it will be just and there will be no escape. In this time, between the roars, the question is, how do we escape? Psalm 2 speaks of the Lion of Judah. The roaring lion, the father has a son. He speaks to the kings who represent all who live in their nation. And he says, Psalm 2.10, So now, O king, show insight, show wisdom, show me that you hear. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The picture is this. The lion is roaring and those who are wise run to the lion. They bow before him. They say, have mercy on me. I desire to walk with you. But how can we walk? The sinner and the holy one. Imperfection and perfection. How can we meet? Where shall we meet? At the cross. The lion you run to has been slain for you. He loves you. The Father has sent Him so that you may meet with Him and walk with Him. The warning is set, but so is His call of mercy. There's only one place to meet the Lord. And that is the cross. You cannot run from Him. 
You must run to him. In between the two roars, there is a message of mercy. He cries out, behold, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Again, I do not know when judgment will come. But I do know this, if you are not walking with the Lord, it will come. And I also know this, if you think you're walking with the Lord, and yet you are continuing in a life of habitual sin, it seems to me that you're not walking with the Lord. And judgment will come. And when it comes, it will start with you, who claim to know the Lord. But there is mercy. And as our nation continues to go further off, more headlong into sin, know this, we need more Amoses sounding forth the voice of mercy, the gospel message that says salvation is now. More men who will not bow to the culture but swim against it and grab others to swim with them. If you know this salvation, let your heart fill with love. If you don't know this salvation, let your heart fill with wisdom. Tremble all the way to the cross and then rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your warning. You are just, you are good, you are all-powerful. We are undeserving. We who have this message are still in the light of your holiness, full of sin, and yet covered in the blood of your Son, perfect. You've given us a great responsibility To have the word in a world filled with darkness is a privilege that is unimaginable and that we will marvel at for all of eternity. So Father, help us not only to marvel, but to proclaim and to go forth and to tell everyone that though judgment is coming, the Son has come. And if you will heed the warning, You can find refuge in that son. We thank you, Father. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen.